0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Japanese names for things. Yeah, I think I've mentioned at least once that Mega Man, Roll, and Proto Man in North America are Rock Man, Roll, and Blues, respectively, in Japan. And that creates a cool naming thing going on with the robot siblings. Bass and Treble from Mega Man 7? That's Forte and Gospel, which adds to kind of their ominous dark appeal. And in Mega Man X, we completely ruin any sense of serious the series has with a cast whose Japanese boss names include Scissor Shrimper, Explose Horneck, and I cannot make this up, Gravity Beatboot. And that's just the cast of 1995's Mega Man X3 on this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Garlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series. From Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can manage. Today, we're sticking around on the SNES, but not solely the SNES. Mega Man X3 is kind of what you would consider to be the first... Really multi-platform Mega Man release. Now, yes, we've had some times in the past where we've had ports of games. We had, you know, Dr. Wily's Revenge, which is very much ports to a different thing. But that involved the game being, like, upgraded and remade, and was several years after the original Games' release. Mega Man X3 is a little bit different from that in that it is on the SNES, then was released a year later in 1996 on the Saturn and PlayStation, and only featured actually a minimum of changes. If you're wondering why as a kid you never saw these parts sitting on rental shelves or anything, it's because the disc versions of Mega Man X3 were only ever released in Europe and Japan. North America did not see a release of that version of the game until the Mega Man X collection in the early 2000s on the GameCube and PlayStation 2. Heck, a year afterwards, Mega Man X3 also saw a release onto PCs. At one point it was even apparently slated to appear on the 3DO, but that never happened, presumably because the 3DO bombed and bombed fast. What's different between the two versions of the game? Well, they handle and play basically the same, so not a whole lot. The only differences, really, are the soundtrack, which we'll get into at the end of this episode, as we always do, and some very, very 90s anime sequences, which... Act as like an opening demo of the game that kind of sums up the previous two Mega Man games. And then when you go and pick a boss stage, you get just a really cheesy animation. Some of which pretend to act really threatening and some of which are just really goofy about the different Mavericks. And it is a cool thing, to X3's credit. I don't think any of the other Mega Man games have done this, and it gives the bosses a little bit more of a personality and snappiness and memorability to their appearance than, well, arguably, as we'll get into, more than they deserve. But, um... The last remaining major change between the versions is that the disc version of the game, in addition to having a password system, weirdly, actually have a save game function in them. This wasn't the first Mega Man game to implement saving, that was The Wily Wars a couple of years back, but it still took them this long, and interestingly, the SNES version still just runs on passwords, so... It's not like Capcom never did cartridges with save functions, either. They'd put out the Breath of Fire games by now, so I really don't fully understand why it took so long. Anyway, that's that's a lot of talk to not talk about the specifics of this game, because we don't necessarily have a whole lot to talk about with X3. We have a bit to talk about story-wise. In the aftermath of X and Zero's battling, a robotic scientist by the name of Dr. Doppler has created an effect which is capable of neutralizing robots that have gone Maverick and turning them back into normal Reploids. He takes these rescued Mavericks and builds Doppel Town, creating a, what seems to be a utopia on the surface, and everything's at peace, until all of a sudden all the former Mavericks go Maverick again and start attacking people, and X and Zero are sent to figure out what's actually happening, and that's really our setup for it. We have a new villainous face this time, not Sigma, or at least not straight up immediately Sigma, we'll see how that turns out. On an overall gameplay front, when you boot up X3, there's nothing immediately different from playing Mega Man X2. There are a couple things that do emerge as different, however. During the opening stage, there is a brief scene where a basically just generic maverick hunter manages to trick X who trusts him and captures X briefly, and then as we're left wondering what just happened, Zero jumps down from the ceiling and we actually get to play as Zero, which is one of the first new features about Mega Man X3. We have the ability in future stages in this game to swap to Zero basically at any time if we want to. Zero plays more or less like an upgraded Mega Man, especially compared to the base like low health and stuff that you would get. He doesn't have all the crazy aerial mobility upgrades or like extra armor and stuff, and it starts to show later in the game. But Zero does essentially have a full set of heart tanks right out the gate, so he has the maximum possible HP. And he also comes with the Z-Saver, which is a crazy powerful charge shot. Of course, there are some limitations to using Zero. First off, if Zero happens to die, time to basically reset the game, Zero actually gets injured and you get this whole cutscene where he's like, hey, yeah, that that really messed me up. I'm going to have to sit out from here on out, and you can't play as Zero anymore. The second limitation he has is, of course, because he is so bloody powerful, anytime you go to enter a boss fight with Zero, Max will be like, oh, don't worry, I'll take it from here, and you're forced back into controlling X. So, for the most part, you don't actually get to use Zero for the interesting parts of the game, because, man, I'm just gonna cover right now, the stage design in X3 is not interesting design at all. A lot of the stages, I barely even have notes on the actual stages themselves, because there wasn't much interesting going on, not even, like, under-realized potential. Just nothing interesting. A lot of these stages are just fairly tight corridors with the same, like, five or six enemy types. And I don't even mean five or six enemy types per stage. I mean five or six enemy types across the game. Every stage tends to have, like, one or two enemies that might be specific to it, but then the rest are all just really generic and reused everywhere. And (sighs) I'm getting negative about this game already, and I don't really want to. I want to be fair to this game. But as we're going to find out, X3 is going to make it really hard sometimes. Anyway, we were in the middle of the opening stage. We get to bust up some enemies at zero, we get to absolutely dunk on that traitorous Maverick Hunter, literally just one tap with the Z-Saber and he is done. Then we set X free, and X goes on to finish the stage, you get another, like, fight with a giant robot that's largely in the background and is mostly kind of harmless, like X2's prologue boss, and then we're off to our stage select. So, I will tackle a couple specific stages first for different reasons. The first stage is Blizzard Buffalo's stage. This is overall a fairly easy stage. It's one of the only stages that really has much in the way of platforming risk. That's another thing, by the way, barring, like, the Doppler stages at the end of the game, most of this game does not get its difficulty from the actual platforming aspects. It gets its difficulty more from, like, bulky enemies that are constantly firing projectiles at you that admittedly in a lot of cases are very carefully positioned to be as difficult to reach as possible. Like, I do kind of have to it to the game on that front, is that if it's going to spam enemies for its difficulty, it at least made a point to make the enemies actually dangerous and notable in this game. Blizzard Buffalo does give us the fun of the most ridiculous ice physics I have seen in a long time, though. Whenever you're on an icy platform in this stage, you you can just build up some ridiculous speed, and if you run into a wall, you will straight up bounce off the wall. It's just kind of silly to me, really. What I do suggest doing this stage first for is the fact that in this stage, you can take a long jump at one point and reach the leg upgrade. Like X2, this enables us to do our air dashing, but also in addition to the air dash, we actually have the ability to air jump if we want. Not like a huge full-on second jump but we can get higher than we used to be able to. And we can use that in a lot of bosses who like to run back and forth across the bottom of the arena, like this stage's boss, Blizzard Buffalo. Most of the time, all that he does is literally just run back and forth across the arena, trying to slam you down and you need to run to the opposite wall and climb and jump over him. On occasion, you will see him throw around ice balls that'll stick on the terrain and such, and be spikes that you'll have to jump over while trying to avoid him. Most he's super easy he also by the way has the best intro in the playstation version because it does this whole like dramatic music bit as he's sizing up some ice and punching it down and then you realize he's just making a sculpture of himself and he gives a thumbs up to the camera it's so silly the other early stage, because it gets you a weapon you'll want to use in later stages, is Tunnel Rhino stage, which is kind of the expected underground mining base stage. You get your conveyor belts, you get enemies that are hiding in rocks, which actually, this stage probably has a couple more unique enemies, but if you come back here with certain upgrades later in the game and certain weapons, you can use them to get access to the helmet upgrade, which the helmet upgrade in this game is actually really nice. What it does is it makes it so that whenever you enter one of the Maverick Hunter's stages, at the start of the stage, you'll actually be displayed a like featureless grid map, which shows you the approximate layout of the stage. It also highlights on that map where any remaining upgrades you have not yet found are this game, it's worth noting there's actually three upgrades per stage in this game. One heart tank, one armor upgrade in some capacity, and I'll explain that in a moment, and one either sub-tank or ride-armored heart, which we'll get into the ride-armors again in a bit. Every stage having three upgrades means there's a lot of stuff hidden in this game, sometimes in places you're probably not going to actually just stumble across it, but even the stage-select screen. Once you have this upgrade, it will display a checklist of which of the three upgrades you have found in each stage, and that's really cool. Of course, it's kind of trying to cheat you out a little bit here. First off, because in order to get this upgrade, you do need to find the weapon upgrade, which requires the weapon from this stage, and you need a specific other weapon from one of the bosses. The other way that it kind of tries to cheat you is in the upgrade system of this game. I mentioned that every stage has an armor upgrade. And yes, there's still just the four basic upgrade parts, feet, body, hands, helmet. But once you have those parts, there are also four advanced parts called chips in this game that you can choose to go out of your way to get. Each of these chips doubles down in some capacity on an upgrade or adds a new functionality. The leg chip for instance, allows you to air dash slash air jump not just once, but twice per jump, or even do a dash jump into an air dash. And the helmet upgrade chip allows you to actually just stand around and recharge your energy, which is cool, I guess. Like it is a really dumb way to refill your sub tanks to just not play the game for like four minutes and listen to this occasional Did it it as your health really slowly recharges. But at least it is an option, and I'll take it over having to leave the stage entirely to go find a good farming location. But these chips are actually traps. The game will tell you straight up, when you go to get one of these, hey, you can take one of these, and you can only have one of them active at a time. And it's not like a menu-switching thing, and you don't actually want any of these chips. And I'll get into why in a little bit, but they are traps. Functionally speaking, pretty much the correct option is not to take them. Anyway, right, we were on Tunnel Rhino. Uh, Tunnel Rhino's a boss. He runs back and forth between the arenas, sides, trying to slam you. Occasionally, he fires drill missiles that run out, like, a moment later after he dashes. Uh, we just got off of Mega Man 7 as well, and Mega Man 7 had, like, kind of pretty bad bosses, but... Like, X3s don't have the issue of having, like, 10 million years of invincibility whenever you hit them with their weaknesses, but they also do the thing where when you hit them with their weaknesses, they will end up basically becoming predictable, but also they're really predictable and easy in general. Well, not necessarily always easy, but, like, I feel like a lot of the bosses in this game are not particularly inspired. Anyway, the reason that we came here was to get Tunnel Rhino's weapons so we can bust open, upgrade locations in a few different stages and get some cool stuff, but also, having cleared two stages, we're going to trigger some cutscenes. Dr. Doppler's taken note of the fact that we've started to defeat his Mavericks at this point, and he's going to send in some help. This is Bit, Bite, and the return of Vile, upgraded into Vile Mark II. Vile being kind of the Boba Fett-looking jackass in Mega Man X1. And essentially, the idea is is that he sends these robots out to deal with Mega Man. In every single stage, there is a boss room partway through the stage that is just empty. After the second boss you defeated, there is a chance that you will run into Bit in these rooms. After the fifth boss, there is a chance you will run into Bite. And there isn't really any benefit to actually fighting and defeating these robots, other than the fact that they will stop showing up and ruining your day. And it's not even like a guarantee you see them. If you fight them and lose to them, and then you get back to that room on your next life, they might just not be there now. Or they might still be there. And honestly, the fights are just kind of there, too. Bit is a relatively small robot who largely does his attacks by just jumping up into the air and then air dashing across the screen at your height to try to tackle you. Technically, he's got a couple projectiles, but they're like nothing. Bite, meanwhile, his entire deal is just that he's a gigantic robot, and if you fail to jump over him when he dashes across the screen… He's just going to like multi-hit combo you as he throws you around, and would be a stupidly trivial boss if he didn't tend to attach magnetic generators to the walls that makes it really hard to wall jump up them. So I really hope you got that leg part for the extra air jump. But that's really it. As for Vile, Vile shows up in a couple different stages and is accessible through hidden teleporters in those stages, which take you to essentially his own like, sub stage at a factory somewhere. There's nothing really to talk about about the level itself. You get to fight Vile first in his big ride armor, which, hey, have you run into uh, the theme of bosses dash across the screen and try to tackle you yet? Because that's what he does. Then afterwards, at least, he switches to fighting you on foot and tries tries to gun you down with a couple different projectiles that he switches between. It's really not that complicated of a fight. You do have to complete an escape sequence after defeating him, like a timed Super Metroid-esque like, escape the area before it blows up type sequence, but it's really not that tough. Given that Vile is located through some really out-of-the-way teleporters that you might not even find, there's no benefit to defeating him, or is there? We'll come back to these guys much later in the game, but for the time being, we'll pick back up our Maverick Hunting with possibly the least inspired musical track in the game, Neon Tiger. Yeah, no, don't worry. That wasn't a good musical track. Uh, Neon Tigers is kind of famously a demonstration of what's wrong with X3's music. And the stage isn't really all that much better. It's just kind of a generic jungle facility stage. The only real gimmick of note is these dragonfly enemies that actually double as platforms and you can jump on their back, but that's it. Come here with the dash jump and the drill from Tunnel Rhino, and you can get yourself the arm parts. Much like X1 and X2, this does allow us to upgrade our weapons. We actually also get two different charge shots when we're fully charged. The thing to note this time is if we fire them off back to back, the second shot will actually outspeed the first one, hit it, and then they transform into like this widespread combo attack thing that's kind of neat, but isn't terribly useful, and most of the time just kind of feels like you should have just fired them off a little bit further apart so that they were two attacks instead. Neon Tiger himself kinda pretends to be X-1 Sigma. He likes to, like, jump on the walls or dash at you with his claws and try to slam you. He also has a projectile attack that fires, like, five shots in a specific spread spaced out in a way that, like, you know exactly when the shot aimed directly at you is going to fire. Unlike some of the previous bosses, he does actually have a decent variety of moves available to him, although they come out slow enough, they're not that dangerous. Like the previous bosses, he likes to just dash across the arena directly at you. God, what is it with this game and that? Did I just front-load all the bosses who did that? I don't even know. Gravity Beetboot. Well, I guess in English, Gravity Beetle. Uh, My notes just say I couldn't find anything worth noting. Not even a mid-boss. Dear Lord, the boss is actually kind of fun. Aside from the dash across the screen and try to tackle you move, that is signature to X3, he does actually like to do things that involve throwing around bouncing gravity balls around the room. And when he's low on HP, he'll actually try to like create a gravity well up at the ceiling that messes with your jumping and makes it dangerous to like climb the walls too high and stuff. I don't know, just not that special of a stage. Blast Hornet stage. This is a military facility where we get to blow up a whole lot of crates, and by a whole lot of crates, I mean so many crates they made a mid-boss out of it. Literally, there's just this encounter halfway through the stage where there's these robots putting crates onto a plane that's going to take off, and there isn't even anything attacking you. You just blow up the crates for like a minute straight, and then you move on. What the... I'm trying really hard to like X3, because there is some cool ideas like we're literally about to get to in this stage, but man... But the cool thing to find in Blast Hornet stage is that if we use the drill to get underground a bit, we will find a Ride Armor that's all chained up and if we bust this free, we can start using the Ride Armor platforms that are in a variety of the stages. The Ride Armor platforms allow us to create those mechanized suits that we've had in X1 and X2 and drive them around in various stages and this time we don't just have the classic X1 riot Armor. We can also find in 3 of the other stages special models of ride armors that we can then call into basically any other stage. One of them has some hovering capabilities and trades in its fists for guns. One of them is X2-style ride armor, where you can charge up the, like, drill fists and fire them out. And one of them is really awkward to control, because it can't walk, it can only, like, do short or tall jumps, but it comes with homing torpedoes and the ability to actually function underwater. The ride armors are present in pretty much every stage of this game, except like maybe the last two Doppler stages, which is a really neat touch to actually be like, hey, let's give the player some opportunities to just enjoy some power, except it doesn't really work out like that because most of the segments where you can actually use the ride armor are so short before you end up being forced out of the ride armor by like a tiny passage it won't fit through. Like you get these brief moments of oh, this is cool, I get to do this, and then the game's like, no you don't. And it's just unsatisfying. The boss, though, is actually one of the better bosses in this game. Not that that's necessarily saying much, but I actually like Blast Hornet. He flies around the screen in a figure-eight pattern that is fairly simple to deal with, though he's quite large. His main attacks involve firing off like a shotgun spread of bees at your location that'll stick around for a while, so you need to be careful to actually divert those to the walls and stuff where it's relatively safe and you'll be able to evade him, or just trying to dive bomb you, which at least his version of Diving across the arena at you is from an aerial position and not just across the floor. When you start getting him low, he starts constantly summoning out a circle of bees that'll block your shot and stuff, and firing off this homing radical that tries to track you down, and doesn't actually attack you until that homing radical grabs onto you, at which point the bees detach from him and come at you. It's not a super detailed boss or anything, but it feels very distinct from a lot of the other bosses. I don't know, I like Blast Hornet. Toxic Seahorse. It's a sewer level that evolves into a full-on underwater level, and that's the grand total of it. Yeah, when I said I don't have much to say about these stages, I meant it. Toxic mostly bounces around and fires various bouncing globules that'll track you down. Really, that's the majority of it. On occasion, he'll like melt into the floor and reform somewhere else, which is basically a trick we've seen with a few different bosses at this point. And it's extremely easy to avoid damage from him popping back up, because you can just climb the walls. He doesn't, like, jump high enough to pull you off the wall the way Wheel Gator or something does. The actual patterns of movement between him and his projectiles that chase you and stuff are kind of fun to dodge, but, eh. Volt catfish basically a power plant stage that has one unique gimmick, having a security laser feature going on, where we actually have to, like, dash through these lasers instead of just walking through them, because the moment that they see us, they'll turn damaging. It's pretty simple. Not a bad stage. Probably one of the better ones in this game, just not super much to talk about. We can pick up the body parts in this stage, if we've got the upgraded buster and the gravity well. The body parts in this one, yes, we get reduced damage coming, they have ditched the across from x2 and instead in this game when you take damage with the upgraded body armor you also get a force field that lasts for like 10 seconds and if you take additional damage during that 10 seconds it's reduced even further like the body armor usually feels like a fairly drastic increase in survivability but jesus christ You are just tanky as hell in this game, especially if you happen to pick up the body chip, which upgrades the force field even further to be more effective. Pretty much everything except the final boss starts doing like one, maybe two damage at most to you, which is ridiculous. Volt Catfish himself mainly just flops around the screen in big jumps. He can throw out various sparks and retract them, and he can go invulnerable in the middle of the screen and throw out a shower of sparks. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, that's another thing a lot of these bosses tend to do, is they have certain attacks that just randomly make their bodies glow and they're invulnerable, which never really feels super great, or at least I don't think it does. I mean, it's kind of important in some ways, but this. Finally, we go to Crush Crawfish's stage, which is set at like an outdoor dockyard type of area. We eventually jump on board a submarine and take out its engine, and that causes the submarine to crash. And then the last section of the stage is basically like, it's turned basically 90 degrees from how you might expect a stage to be designed, so we actually have to wall climb. And that's kind of a neat idea, but I don't feel like anything too interesting was actually done with it. It's over too quick to really matter. And the boss himself is kind of a joke, He likes to dash around on the floor. If you try to jump over him, he tries to grab you with his claw, but it's usually fairly easy to avoid that. There's a projectile that he fires around as well that lingers for a really long time, which could have been threatening, but all it does if it catches you is prevents you from jumping for like a second. So honestly, if he throws it at you, it's best to just take it to the face because it doesn't even do any damage, and then it's gone. And it'll be gone before he even tries to dash at you again. It's Crushed clawfish is kind of a joke. I need to stop being so negative. Let's talk about the weapons. That might help, right? Right? Okay, I lied. The weapons in this game aren't great. They aren't necessarily terrible, and there's some couple neat ideas in them, but they're really not that great. Most of the time, you'll be just fine using your buster in this game, and that's unfortunate. My least favorite weapon in this game is not the least interesting weapon. It's the parasitic bomb. This is a shot that hits enemies and deals minor damage, but if you hit weak enemies with it, it latches onto them and then, like, drags them into the nearest other enemy to damage both of them. Now, this is kind of a neat effect, but that effect only seems to take effect on particularly weak or unimpressive enemies, and that's really unfortunate because you can just deal with those enemies with easy methods in other ways like it just doesn't matter that much and otherwise it's just a basic shot the charge shot is kind of neat while you are charging the weapon up it will start firing off various lock-on signals and as long as you keep charging it up it keeps firing those out and every time it locks onto something it fires a bee after them but again it's just not that significant an impact it's creative i like what it's going for but it's not that great Next up, the Gravity Well attempts to emulate the effects of the Gravity Hold, but nerf it into a balanced state. The Gravity Well fires out a pod that takes a couple seconds to activate, then kind of does its effect sort of over like three seconds or so. Then any weak enemies that are on the screen die, then the pod slowly floats back to you and you can fire it again. Here's the kicker, the Gravity Well doesn't affect half the enemies in the game. It literally just affects the trivial minor enemies that you can deal with really easily with other weapons. Anything significant you'd want to actually break out a weapon for? This doesn't do anything to it. The charge shot is a little bit improved. It starts up the effect a little faster and then basically continues it for several seconds. There's a couple screens, I guess, where this is useful, but man, the process of trying to balance this, they went hard. Next up is the Frost Shield, which um, doesn't really fit the word shield on its basic projectile, which is an incredibly slow startup projectile that when it hits something, breaks and leaves behind like this little spiked mine that can hit enemies again, which is a neat idea, but most of the enemies in this game are actually immobile, and if you end up with two of these little mines sitting on the screen, you have to open up the start menu to switch weapons in order to remove them because you can't fire more. If you charge this weapon up, It does actually become a frost shield, which I believe is capable of negating certain small enemy projectiles, which isn't that bad. The one thing that is secretly nice about this weapon is that, for whatever reason, they decided that there's certain enemy types in this game that if they are killed with the frost shield are guaranteed to drop health, but the weapon itself just doesn't feel good. Next up is the Tornado Fang, which, despite the name, is our drill from Tunnel Rhino. It's slow to start up, but once it actually catches an enemy, it will stick in them and repeatedly do small amounts of damage. And interestingly, while it's doing this, it actually, like, paralyzes the enemy and removes their hitbox for a couple of seconds, which is kind of a nice thing, because sometimes it means you can, like, drop one on an enemy right in front of you and just dash through them. For the purpose of actually dealing damage to things, though, it just doesn't feel particularly great to use. Even if you use the charge shot, which allows you to just pull out and maintain a drill directly in front of you while you hold the charge button, but eh, not a terrible weapon. We're getting into a more usable set here. The Ray Splasher is basically a shotgun-type weapon, it fires a spread of bullets over a couple seconds. It feels random, I think it's technically not. Mostly the thing about this is, most enemies in this game that aren't bosses don't have particularly long iframes, and the Ray Splasher seems to work fairly well at just destroying anything you can get close up enough to to actually hit it repeatedly. I didn't hate using the Ray Splasher. I did hate using its charge shot, which fires a glass orb up into the air that just fires in a seemingly completely random pattern. Just don't bother actually hitting anything, but the base weapon is pretty okay. The acid burst is next. It's just a lobbed acid shot that breaks into smaller projectiles when it lands. The thing about this weapon is it's actually decently powerful as a weapon, and you can fire it straight upwards if you need to or pop it directly at your feet to, I guess, attack both sides, Though that's never really a thing you need. But the ability to fire directly over your head? Yeah, turns out that's kind of useful in the X Games every once in a while when you're dealing with a lot of enemies hanging out on walls. The charge shot just fires a pair of bouncing shots that is actually occasionally kind of useful for bulkier enemies, but most of the time you'll get by just fine without charging it. The spinning blade? from Crush Crawfish is pretty decent. The spinning blade from Crush Crawfish is actually pretty strong. It fires out two blades that travel only a short distance in front of you before they like curve backwards and fire behind you. But assuming you either turn your back to an enemy briefly or just get up in something's face and then fire, this is one of the more powerful weapons in the game. And that makes it pretty effective. If you charge it up, it like, shoots out a spinning bladed yo-yo on a tether for a few seconds, and if you press up or down during that time, you'll actually loop it around yourself, and it's kind of neat and fairly powerful, but never really needed, and sometimes you just forget you have it, especially when the base weapon is actually pretty solid. The most usable and fun weapon in the game, though, is definitely the Triad Thunder. This creates a triangle of pods around X that will fire an electric current between them for a couple seconds, acting basically as a deployable shield. And while there is a bit of a delay on its startup, if it falls off it takes a little bit of time for it to pick back up, and you need to mash the button repeatedly and repeatedly consume ammo to like keep cycling it to prevent that from happening. But the thing about the Triad Thunder is it is actually really powerful. Just getting up in something's face and activating Triad Thunder kills most things in this game. And if something's in a really pain-in-the-neck position to reach from where you are, you can always charge it up and punch the ground and cause an earthquake. I'd be confused about this if I wasn't familiar with the whole mythology of catfish in Japan being tied with, like, the idea of earthquakes and stuff. So, it kind of makes some sense in Japanese. But while I didn't feel the need to use this very much, it does actually work, and it is a full-screen blow, and it tends to do a ton of damage, so. Yeah, the Triad Thunder is, like, it's no junk shield, because the junk shield lasted for 10 years after you activated it, but it has that kind of punch to it that gets you getting up in things' faces, and I'll take that. Probably the actual best weapon in this game, though, is one that I didn't mention. It's the Arm Chip upgrade, which is the Hyper Charge. The Hyper Charge is a gauge that refills when you are hit by projectiles, kind of like the Nova Strike. But whereas the Nova Strike consumed its entire gauge to do a single screen-wide attack, the Hyper Charge is your Mega Buster, but you don't have to charge it. Instead of consuming time holding down the button, every time you press the button, you will fire out one of your charge shots, and it will just deplete a little bit off. Off the top of that gauge instead the buster in this game could be a little bit clunky because of the dual shot nature of it but being able to spam out charge shots like that is really powerful it turns out especially with an upgrade we're going to pick up while we're in doppler's fortress So, having defeated all of Dr. Doppler's mavericks, Kane informs us that his research into Dr. Doppler's lab has revealed that Dr. Doppler appears to be building some sort of super-weapon battle body, but not for himself. And X immediately puts together the pieces and goes, oh god, it's Sigma again, isn't it? And so we'd better go stop Dr. Doppler. Stage 1 is actually kind of neat. It isn't an assault on the outside of a fortress type of stage. Stage 1 puts us down in what is basically a robot junkyard, for the idea that Dr. Doppler's been, like, cannibalizing bits and pieces of different robots in order to build this super weapon. which, when we're all robots here, um, kind of creepy, actually. We do get a couple attempts to throw us off, like, spiked ceilings that drop real close to us at certain points, but mostly it's an unremarkable stage. There is, however, a couple things to it beyond just the stage design that are remarkable. First off, just like in the first and second X games, there is a secret ultimate upgrade, and in this case, it's down a pit you will find an empty room, like in X2, however, if you have every upgrade to that point and full health, but have not picked up any of the chips, there will be a Dr. Light capsule there, and that Dr. Light capsule will give you the ultimate armor chip. This turns all of Mega Man's armor gold and acts as taking all four of the upgrade chips at the same time. This is why you don't pick up the chips, because if you have any of the chips, you can't remove them and you have permanent missed out on this upgrade, and listen, access to the hypercharge, even further damage reduction, two air dashes, the ability to just stand there and recharge your health and your sub-tanks to full by just waiting like two minutes after a failed boss fight, the ultimate armor is nuts. The weapons may not be so great in this game, but you don't really need them. Your base functionality is through the roof in this game. You can get stronger than in any other Mega Man game to date. And you'll feel it when you fight the boss of this stage, blank. That's the other thing that is really interesting about X3's late game. There's actually two different potential bosses you will face in Stage 1 and Stage 2. The normal boss most players will run into in Stage 1 is a fusion of bit and bite. Mostly, it's this stationary robot that just throws various projectiles at you, though, and is kind of a joke because of the fact that it's just a giant target, especially if you happen to pick up the ultimate armor and it's now only doing like 1-2 damage to you per attack, so whatever. However, when we fought Bit and Bite early in the game, if you defeat them, using the actual weakness weapon they have, which they each have two different weaknesses, so there's a fair chance. If you defeat them using their weaknesses, instead of just running off at the end of the fight, they will have actually exploded. And if we destroyed both of them this way, neither of them will be available to take on their ultimate form. We will instead fight a weird scrap disposal robot, really creative boss that's hard to describe. It's got like a long nose that tries to spit acid at you, which you can destroy it, but if you destroy that It causes the acid to leak all over the floor, and then you're stuck clinging to the back wall in order to be safe against it. It tries to, like, drop junk on you at various points, or, like, slam down over top of you. It's a fairly tough boss to avoid damage against, and just has some unique mechanisms to it, even if it's not, like, a super fun boss, but it's very neat. Especially compared to the mediocre bosses in X3, this thing is just conceptually really distinct. Stage 2 is mostly unremarkable, excluding a segment near the end of it where we have to. We have to endure, is the only way to put it. This extremely long climb up a just corridor of spikes on these extremely slow moving platforms. It really just sucks. There's no reason for them to be as absurdly slow as they were. You just have to wait. At the end of this stage, we will fight Vile in a new right armor, and he's basically the same as the Vile fight we had before. It's changed up a little bit. His attacks are a little bit more dangerous and complicated, and this time, the fact that the arena is much wider means it's harder to run away from him to reach the wall whenever he tries to tackle you, but otherwise it's the same kind of two-phase idea. However, if we hunted down Vile and actually destroyed him, in his stage with his weakness weapon, the stage itself this time actually noticeably changes. Part of the stage becomes flooded, some of the enemies are more difficult, and halfway through the stage, we have an additional mid-boss. This mid-boss is this awkward, like, mosquito bot that I don't really know what it does, because I killed it with Zero. This is the one mid-boss in the game that and there's no indication this is the case, this is the one mid-boss in the game you can actually fight a Zero. And it's risky to do it, because if you fail, Zero Gets destroyed and you have to load up from your password. But if you defeat this mid boss with zero by hitting it like once with your Z saber, the mid boss will crash into zero as its final action and damage zero. X will jump back into the scene, and Zero's like, hey, you're gonna have to finish this fight for me. Here's my Z-Saber. And now, we get the most ridiculous buster we have ever had. Just like Zero could, we can now fully charge our buster in additional level and get the Z-Saber. If we had the arm chip, we also get the ability, when we swing the Z-Saber, to swing out, like, a sword beam that means we don't even have to be in close range to use it. And listen, the Z-Saber does have half of a boss's HP on hit. It isn't an in instant kill the way the Hadoken and Shoryuken were in X1 and X2, but that doesn't matter because we don't have to be at full health to use it, and it still only takes two hits to kill anything. Even the final bosses are not immune to this thing. The only thing that keeps it from being absolutely insane is the fact that it is clunky to use. You have to fully charge, and then you have to fire off your first two charge shots, and if you're trying to use it while sliding down a wall, weirdly enough, Mega Man will just fire the Z-Saber through the wall that you're clinging onto, and you're like, no, stop that. But man, if you can get used to actually using the Z Saber, this game becomes a joke, especially the alternate boss of Stage 2, which is this like underwater fight. Kraken thing that fires various projectiles at you. I don't care, it takes two hits to kill it. If you're in this stage, it's probably because you're picking up the Z-Saber. And whether or not you picked up the Z-Saber or not, chances are the ultimate chip is going to utterly trivialize stage three, which is a bunch of boss refights. The only thing that's distinct about these boss refights is that rather than having just like energy dropped by a boss or respawned in the room between every fight, we have like this capsule thing that we have to damage. It will pop out either health refills or weapon energy refills, which honestly are kind of useless. If you hit it with the Z-Saber though, by the way, it will just spit out a 1-Up, because you totally need it to be more overpowered. Then we actually meet with Dr. Doppler face-to-face, who's all like, well, you know, you're pretty good, X. how about, like, just join us? We just want a Utopia where Reploids are in charge. That's, that's all we want. Sigma can give us that. We don't have to worry about humans interfering anymore. Like, just just come join us. Come join Sigma. And X is like, lol, no. And so Dr. Doppler throws off his lab coat to reveal he's kind of jacked under that thing. And he's a bit of a joke. He alternates between a couple aimed shots at us, surprise, dash attack across the screen at us, and also healing himself. Yeah, that's right. Technically, it isn't straight up healing himself. He is waiting to see if you will shoot him, and if you do, while he has this force field up, he will actually just be healed instead of taking damage. But it can make this fight last a lot longer, which is the only hard part about it because it's really kind of a joke. Like, he is extremely predictable and slow to act, even for an X3 boss, and especially now that you probably have at least one of the ultimate chip or the Z-Saber, especially the Z-Saber, like, things are gonna be easy. When we defeat Dr. Doppler, we kind of snap him out of his maverick state. What he tells us is that Sigma's true form isn't that of a robot. Yeah, he's been building Sigma a body, Sigma's a virus. Sigma had infected Doppler, and that's why he went crazy. Sigma had infected the different Mavericks we've been fighting. That's why they're Maverick. Doppler tells us, hey, you need to go destroy this battle body I've built before Sigma gets to it. He's not there yet. You might be able to beat him to the punch. Stage 4, we don't beat him to the punch. Apparently, that wasn't the only body that Dr. Doppler had been building, because we can see a bunch of Sigmas and test tubes in the background. Sigma has taken over one of them, and we have to fight him. He has a predictable loop of firing some projectiles, then jumping overhead and doing a different attack and looping that. He's made a little bit difficult by the frequency of the attacks and the fact that he actually has a shield most of the time, which will block our attacks unless he's airborne or directly firing at us at that moment, but completely predictable. After destroying him, however, Sigma retreats and jumps into the battle body, and now we have to fight Big Haunting Sigma. So, giant mech Sigma, kind of like a lot of the giant mechs we have dealt with in the game. First off, he literally just looks like we are fighting a big-ass Gundam. Kind of intimidating, especially with the fact that we have to hit him, like, right at the top of the head. Anywhere else will just, like, bounce off. And it is a little bit tricky to avoid all of his different attacks. He has, like, a couple different types of homing projectiles. He's steadily shooting at you. He does have a giant laser beam he fires, but it's extremely predictable when that comes out and you get a bunch of warning and then you just make sure you're either on the top or bottom half For the screen is necessary. If it weren't for the fact that this boss is extremely predictable, he'd actually be really tough. But he's extremely predictable. He is 100% in a loop. Like, I'm not going to pretend it's trivial to defeat him. The weak point is very limited, and fully avoiding his attacks can actually be fairly difficult sometimes, but man... A lot of the reason he was so difficult in previous games was that it was so hard to predict what he was going to do, and everything he did punished you hard. And in X3, that's just really not the case. When we defeat the battle body, then it's the return of wireframe Sigma Head, who's going to laugh at us and threaten to possess us as we have to escape fire raging up the bottom of the screen and we have to, like, outrace it by wall climbing. Except you don't have to. It's like that lava chase back in Flame Stag Stage in the previous game. If it catches you, it just does damage, and you can literally just stand in it if you have enough health left after the fight. Assuming we survive this, we escape the Sigma Virus, the Wireframe Sigma Virus, and we reach the end of a corridor, and right as Sigma's about to possess X, either Zero or Dr. Doppler will dive in to come save us. If it's Zero, he's coded his Z-Saber, apparently, in a Sigma antivirus provided by Doppler. If it's Doppler himself, Doppler allows himself to get possessed, only for Sigma to realize, wait a second, he's completely, like, antivirused up his body. That's going to cause us both to explode, because that's how antiviruses work in Mega Man X, apparently. Whichever ending we get, X makes it out of the fortress... And we get the usual look over the fortress as the sun sets, probably with Zero by his side, because that's how this do. And we get the usual melodramatic narration of how X's body is trembling from an unknown sorrow, wondering why Reploids have to fight each other. And it also mentions something about how his destiny's already been decided. To save mankind, he will have to destroy Zero, which was completely unprecedented elsewhere in the story, and has no further explanation. What? Yeah, robot roll call. We're we're done. Okay, how do I feel about X3? It should be kind of obvious at this point, I would think. There's some stuff X3 is trying that is cool. I like the idea of trying to better integrate the ride armors into more stages and balancing it out by making them upgrades. I like the idea of the chips and like mutually exclusive upgrades, although the implementation of them is not great. I like the cutscenes that are added in the PlayStation and Saturn versions, the ones that add more color to the actual Mavericks that you're hunting down. They're goofy and unnecessary, but they're fun. And I like, um, um, yeah. X3 is a game with a couple ideas in it. And I will be frank, I didn't hate playing this game. It wasn't pulling teeth the way that, like, the Mega Man DOS games or soccer or anything were. No, I had a decent enough time playing this game. But I can't say I think of this as a good game. X3 is like a testament to the fact that the core of Mega Man X, with its movement options and the fluidity of those basic controls, is good. Because even with a mediocre and boring level design and bosses and stuff, it's still decently fun to play. But this is... One of the least interesting Mega Man games we've had in a long time. It's got a ton of ideas of what it wants to play around with and doesn't capitalize on any of those, and that's just really unfortunate. And that kind of fits the music too, but not quite. Okay, so I mentioned early on the SNES and PlayStation slash Saturn versions of this game have a different soundtrack. The underlying melodies, by and large, stay the same. You will recognize almost all of these tracks between one version and another. But the instrumentation and the sound changes drastically, and not just because it's suddenly CD recording quality. It's because, literally, the SNES sound font tends to be made of, like, an electric guitar, a bass guitar, and a drum kit, and maybe some electronic drones. There's extremely poor instrument variety and difference in tone and stuff, compared to even X2, where I was kind of complaining that it was all sort of blending together as rock. No, X3 SNES is pretty bad. X3 on CD is an improvement in, honestly, probably just about every case. There was a couple spots where I'm like, uh, maybe. Like, I think I like the opening stage a little bit better on SNES, but The PlayStation versions of the tracks have a much wider variety of instrumentation, and that helps rescue a lot of the soundtrack from being completely mediocre by at least ensuring all the tracks sound a little bit more different from each other. Of course, that comes at the cost that the PlayStation version's music doesn't loop. It's literally just playing sounds off of a CD, so when it reaches the end of the track, it just fades out like a CD and restarts. Anyway, to give a demonstration, I'm going to play Blizzard Buffalo's theme as the first track to highlight in this game. This is a pretty decent opportunity to show where the PlayStation version does improve. I'm not gonna say this track is saved from mediocrity and being forgettable by the PlayStation version, but at least there is some interesting, like, depth to the instrumentation, and something about the sound and the way it was done in this game does make me think of Symphony of the Night specifically in this track. Saying that it would fit in Symphony of the Night would be a gigantic insult to Symphony of the Night soundtrack, but you might get a bit of the same vibe. Next up, we have Zero's theme. So, some songs sound way different. Zero's SNES track exactly sounds like the kind of Mega Man X hard rock, just not super fleshed out into anything too cool. The PlayStation version, weirdly, makes the decision to turn it into something jazzier, letting a saxophone lead. I was iffy on it at first, but I think I kind of love what it ended up becoming, even if its opening notes sound like an athletic competition kicking off? Finally, we will go to Blast Hornet's theme, and I do want to specify, I still don't think this is an amazing track. I don't think anything in X3's soundtrack is really all that super good, but Blast Hornet's track does have Mega Man energy to it. It has a lot of the rock energy that is signature to the X series, but feels like it's more or less landing it, and the PlayStation version especially, one or two of the instruments chosen to be added to it aren't quite matching up and a bit mismatched. But it turns what would be like multiple parts of the same instrument into different instruments, adding like an electronic and trumpet layer to it that just I think is actually pretty solid. And with that, we are done with Mega Man X3. We're surprisingly not done with the SNES. In fact, it's going to take a weirdly long time before we see the SNES again, but we will. But we are leaving both the SNES and the PlayStation 1 and the Saturn behind for the time being. Our next episode is going to take Mega Man on a journey onto a system he has not appeared on before breaking his mold a little bit, but not like soccer-level crazy, but it's not going to be just another platformer. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the episode, hit me up at what am I podcasting for at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at whatamipodcast as in the number 4. Stop by waipf.podbean.com, the main site for this podcast, if you want to pick up an RSS feed or catch the latest episodes as soon as possible, or you want direct downloads or whatever. Until the next episode releases, I've been Garlisle. Thank you for listening, and remember, gravity beat boot, beat boot. Uh, why is that so funny to me? <laughs> Now we have to fight Big Haunting Sigma. Bigma, for short. No, wait. This is the start of a terrible joke.